1: All right, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. I would be Matt or Matlana. I didn't give myself the nickname. I earned the nickname. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. He is a Hall of Famer and a former Falcon who, frankly, had the biggest moment in Falcons franchise history, kicking the then Dirty Birds into the Super Bowl. He talks about that along with an interesting upbringing that brought him to the United States and an interesting career that spanned Oh, almost three decades. Here's Morton Anderson. So, Mort, let's start as the uh, ute that was Morton Anderson, the uh, the kid playing sports, or just what was everyday life for Morton Anderson growing up in Denmark?
0: Full of sports, full of uh, soccer balls, handballs, gymnastics, uh, anything I could do uh, in sports uh, with a ball, I was I was doing it, and so being. Uh, being in a small country the size of Maryland with about five and a half million people, the most popular sport was uh, was soccer, and then handball, which is an Olympic sport. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's uh, it's it's a pretty cool physical sport too. So,
1: what kind of athlete were you, top to bottom?
0: Uh, I was it was good. I was above average. I was a big kid. Uh, when I was you know young, I was one of the bigger kids, so I would play striker. They would use me a lot on corner kicks because I could jump higher than anybody else uh, because I had been training in, in gymnastics and then vaulting and tumbling. So I had explosive power that I think some of the other kids hadn't developed yet. So I, I was probably a little bit ahead of the curve, I would say.
1: So tell me about the first time you came to the States and or the first time you got the idea that there's a chance I could kick a football and play that sport.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, by coincidence that i fell into the game of football i I wanted to play soccer i was at a high school on the west side of indianapolis named ben davis high school big school lots of lots of uh, great tradition especially in in football Uh, they didn't have a soccer program so that eliminated that choice right away and they were in the need of a kicker they had quarterback tim Wilbur, who went on and played at indiana and also played in the had a cup of coffee with a couple of NFL teams, uh, was the kicker. They wanted him to focus on being the quarterback, and that allowed me to kind of step into that that role as the team's uh, place kicker. And I had no idea if I could do it. You know, the whole team lined up, about 80 guys, wanted to watch me kick, and we started kind of at the extra point, moved back uh, – and when we got to 50, I was still making him. So I think at that point they realized, well, I think we have a new kicker here. So it was uh, it was a pretty cool, very quick uh, transition from becoming, a, you know, I was an exchange student. I didn't speak the language. I'd been in the country maybe two days. Uh, and uh, I'm in in pads and helmet. And I was arguing, of course that if I really had to wear all this stuff, it was cumbersome, I felt. It was not something I was used to from soccer. We just wore t T-shirt and uh, and shorts and uh, your soccer cleats, but uh, apparently you have to wear the equipment uh, in American football. So I I slowly got used to it. I think uh, my number was 42. It was the only number available at the time. All, all the other roster numbers were taken, and um yeah, that's where my, kind of my career started as a Ben Davis Giant and uh, in American football. It, it, was, it was wonderful, man. It was uh, an exciting new time. It was a great way for me to meet uh, like-minded uh, guys. And uh, it was popular with the girls, which didn't hurt either at mm-hmm. 17, as, if you know what I mean. So it, it, overall, a win-win, I felt.
1: When did you start to get on the radar for college programs in the recruiting game?
0: Pretty quickly, actually, we uh, like I said, we had a very good team. We made it all the way to the semi-state. We were eleven and one. We were scoring. We're killing people, and um, I would say a couple of months in, I started getting letters from colleges, uh, smaller colleges, but I think the big. Uh, I lived in a family. All of the kids, all the parents had had gone to Purdue, uh, and they were all Purdue Boilermakers. So. They were pushing hard for me to become a Purdue Boilermaker. Purdue was recruiting me, um, but so was Michigan State. And Michigan State had a Danish kid named Hans Nielsen, who was a kicker up there. He uh, just... By chance, I found out later, he grew up in, uh, in a little town about an hour from my town in Denmark. We didn't know each other until he started uh, recruiting me on behalf of Michigan State there in 1977-78. So uh, Purdue wanted to sign me on signing day. I remember that Michigan State had flown in and said hey let's go to this place noble romans it was a pizza place and uh, they knew full well that purdue was uh, at my parents house so they had snagged me we had gone to this pizza place and at midnight when you were allowed to you know sign the letter of intent they flipped that thing out and said hey here we go sign here and uh, and i did and so when i got back to the house of course Purdue was there. Uh, they were on the phone, waiting to hear if I was going to be a Boilermaker. I said, "I'm a Michigan State Spartan." So that was um, <laughs> that's how that whole thing went down. It was kind of a a coup, a little coup on behalf of the Spartans.
1: <laughs> so we took the plunge. Yes, at the Chernoff House, the big renovations are going on. So it comes down to making the right choices when you want to do some of these renovation projects, and for us. When it came down to flooring and carpet, we wanted to work with a great local company that we know could get the job done. That's why we turned to Peachwood Floor Coverings. I got a chance to meet Ryan Cornell and the great folks from Peachwood. When I say meet them, we got in touch with Ryan. 48 hours later, they came out to our home to start setting up measurements and looking at potential options for flooring and carpeting choices. It was beautiful. I love the process. It was just that easy. And right now, the process can be that easy for you. If you go to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com, you can schedule a consultation. They'll come out to your home. And all this month, if you mention Matt, that's the promo code Matt, they're going to save you 10% on that flooring or carpet installation that you've always wanted. You want it easy, you want the process done quickly, and you want it to look beautiful. We're getting all that done with Peachwood Floor Coverings. Again, go online to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com, or you can call them at 678 935-6901. 935-6901. Peachwood floor coverings, big company quality, small company services.
0: Home field advantage exists in baseball. Insurance too. Your local Trusted Choice independent insurance agents are active members of your community. They'll always have your back. Find a local auto, home, or business insurance agent at trustedchoice.com.
1: Folks, you just heard from Smoltsy, and you heard it from me as well. Clayton Rhodes and the Rhodes Group are my trusted choice for insurance agents. They've been my agent for a long time, and they serve all of Metro Atlanta. To get up to 10 auto insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes, visit Rhodes-Group.com churnoff today. That's Rhodes-Group.com slash it's a new year which means it's time to try something new and i'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the daily draft in downtown woodstock i hope you'll go see my friend sean daly that's get it the daily draft this is the ultimate sports bar experience so as the football playoffs near and then baseball's around the corner knock on wood and all the fun springtime things that will happen in atlanta you're going to want to enjoy it at the daily draft it's downtown woodstock on main street what you're going to find A craft beer bar, self-serve taps, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salads, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. Thedailydraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like trivia night, kids eat free night, and more. Thedailydraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love the daily draft. So tell me about life in the Big Ten, uh, life on campus at Michigan State. What was it, let's say, in that era compared to where we are today?
0: Very liberating, you know, because you didn't have. And I, I'm just comparing with athletes today. I cannot imagine being a uh, a commodity on a on a D1 school right now. You know, a a, a known player. Uh, you cannot do anything without social media getting in the way. You know, I grew up in an era before the cell phone, before the internet, and so if I told you, hey Matt, I'm going to meet you at the at the bell tower at noon. And I was there at noon, and you weren't there. Well, something something happened to Matt. He couldn't make it. Okay, so you go on with your business. Now it's instantaneous, and, uh, you know, everybody thinks they're uh, a celebrity because they tweet out something. I mean, it's just a crazy world. So for me, very liberating college experience, formative years, loved it. It was uh, still kind of an innocent era. You know, a lot of experimentations on many levels, but at the end of the day, uh, 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 four years of just uh, being a student athlete uh, with the good, the bad, and the ugly, but much, much more, you know, good than than bad and ugly. And you know, your word meant something. I'm not saying that's not the case today, but you know, you, there was just a level of trust. There wasn't this suspicion of, uh, I wonder what the motives are over here because of what technology now allows everyone to do uh, too quickly without thinking about repercussions. I think that's the danger we have. But today is um, people really have to think when they put out tweets, when they go on Instagram, when they go on Facebook, Snapchat, whatever whatever platforms you use, think about how that's, you know, the bullying, not only the, the cyberbullying, but also how does it affect uh, who you represent, whether it's your school, your family, your legacy, yourself, uh, and and uh, and think about that before you just uh, put out hurtful tweets or words um, that can can damage not only you but the people that you represent. So I think that's that's the lesson we have to constantly be aware of uh, today.
1: Yeah, agree a hundred percent. Before we talk about the next level, how was. Morton Anderson, the student, how were your grades?
0: I was uh, All-American, academic All-American. I was a three two five double major in German communications. I had a minor in French and marketing. Wow. Uh, so I was busy. I was taking a full, full load uh, the whole time. Now, uh, I never went to summer school either. Uh, I did go back after my rookie year with the Saints, and I had 12 credits left on my double major. And so I went back and enrolled at Michigan State My, um, you know, for, for one term in my fifth year to, to finish and to graduate. I, I will say it was the hardest thing I ever had to do because I had a little bit of money. I'd been out for uh, a year um, and kind of gotten the taste of being a pro ball player. And uh, so I'm starting to think, well... My mother and father always, always, always told me to finish what you started, so that kind of stuck in my mind. I said I have to, uh, as distasteful as as it is right now, because I'm 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 having a lot of fun. I got to go back and get my diploma, and it was the one thing that I'll never regret doing. It was uh, it was definitely uh, worth going back for.
1: Well, you mentioned the uh, the professional career how it began. So, am I right about this? You were taken in the fourth round, which. You know, we don't yeah, see. Pick. Yeah, without mm-hmm, the third. the exception of a uh, Janikowski and a few others that get you know mm-hmm. drafted high. Did you have an idea that the Saints were interested that they were going to take you that high? And what was draft day like for you?
0: No, I had had no communication with the Saints. I've had I had a lot with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, they had, and and of course I know now why. Gil Brandt was a master and a pioneer in how. He rated players, how he communicated with prospects. He was on the cutting edge with the Cowboys, Tex Stram, Landry, and, and Gil Brandt. Um, so lots of communication actually was at Texas Stadium. My senior year, the Dallas Cowboys flew me down there. I remember being in the old Texas Stadium with a bunch of, uh, not only Dallas cheerleaders, uh, Cowboys cheerleaders there. They're, they're, I mean, iconic, so... It kind of blew my mind that I here I am, a little guy from a fishing village in western Denmark. I'm I'm standing in Texas Stadium, uh, looking at the the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. It was just one of those indelible marks, uh, and and not for any weird reasons, just for the fact that I had seen him on television and I followed the Cowboys because they were the ones they were communicating with me. So I I was in my mind I was going to be a Dallas Cowboy. Um, little did I know that that was really just more posturing and gathering information on the part of Gil Brandt. I had conversations with him about this uh, at the hall of fame when he he just got inducted this year. So, uh, but he was so far ahead of everybody else and how you, uh, how you evaluated players and how you, you got to them. And so no, no uh, communication with the saints at all. I, I remember on draft day um, we had a, uh, I lived in a, what I can best describe as a uh, an animal house. <laughs> <laughs> it was a house with six guys, very different guys. Uh, a couple of jocks, a photographer, a uh, yeah. Anyway, we had like six very different personalities living in this house. The kitchen was a science experiment. I never never went in there. Um, <laughs> Rent was like 150 bucks a month, you know, it was, uh, I remember uh, the landlord would come once a month and I would, my room was on the second floor. I remember throwing the money in an envelope down to him. He, he wouldn't even step foot in his, in this house. He was at the front door and everybody would throw their rent money down to him and he would collect it and leave as quickly as he could. So anyway, in this house on draft day, we decided we were going to have a party, a draft party because. This was in the days, the infant days of ESPN and Chris Berman doing the draft. Um, so it is not, of course, it wasn't close to what it is today with this big production and and uh, circus that they move all over the uh, all over the United States. But nevertheless, we had a little TV on, we had a keg of beer, I had local media there, and uh, we started, you know, around uh, whenever draft uh, started. Uh, this was an all day deal. Back then, they had more rounds. They had more than, I think, seven rounds. They had like 12 rounds, so it was a, it was a longer period of, of waiting. And I, we had waited the whole day. The, the cake was floating. The um, the on-air guy that was supposed to go on at 5-4 live shots passed out on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to wake him up because I actually got drafted right around uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, by a guy named Jack Cherry, who was Bump Phillips' assistant, Got on the phone and said, "Bum Phillips wants to talk to you." I didn't. I didn't know who Bum Phillips was. And at this point, I had about eight, eight uh, cups of beer in my belly, so I was feeling no pain. And uh, anyway, the phone, the phone did. The phone call came from Bum, and he. The first thing he said to me was son, do you like Budweiser and country music? (laughs) I was like, yes, sir. (laughs) And knowing full well, I preferred, you know, a, a little jazz and a little Merlot, you know, a little cab, but whatever, it didn't matter. Uh, I was, he goes, come on down. We just drafted you. And so third, third pick in the fourth round was, uh, was where I went to. And, uh, I had to look at a map and say, "Where, where, the, where the hell is New Orleans? <laughs> you know? Where am I going?" Uh, I had I knew very little about the city other than uh, the jazz and the, the music, and uh, and uh, that it was going to be hot. I, that I knew.
1: Do you remember but, uh, what the uh, what the signing bonus in the year one salary was?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. We can. I don't care. I mean, it was a, a signing bonus of forty two thousand five hundred. My salary was forty grand of course, I saw very little of it because we had a strike in 1982. So, you know, no play, no pay. Um, so that, that really was, uh, but I had enough money that I bought a Toyota Supra and that, that car, I drove back to Michigan state after the season to finish my, uh, finish my degree.
1: You were living large at that time. Uh, you mentioned the 1982 season, which I want to talk to you about your playing days in a minute, but how tough was it getting acclimated to New Orleans or how overwhelming? Because that city can eat up just somebody working a 9-to-5 job, let alone an athlete with some money and fame.
0: Well, I first of all, I had no money and I had no fame. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my starting point was really raw and very basic. Uh, there were a lot of doubters there because – of the experiment with Russell Erchleben, uh, who was a first-round pick by the Saints kicker-punter that had gone terribly wrong, and now Russell was just punting the ball, and that's the reason they had a guy named Benny Ricardo. Benny didn't have the leg strength, and that's why they, they drafted me, I, I believe, because I could hit the long balls and, and so forth. Kickoffs was important back then because you were kicking off from, you know, 35-yard line, and then shortly after that 30 yard line so you needed good kickoffs Um, not today where you know it's it's a non-play so once uh, once I got to the city I just had an absolutely disastrous preseason I think I was three for 12 I couldn't hit the side of a barn it was just bad and uh, you know people were saying well here we go again another bust at the kicking position so um, I got into the very first opening. We're playing the St. Louis Cardinals uh, in opening opening game at home in the Superdome. We lose the toss, so I kick off. I kick it about seven yards deep in the end zone. The guy uh, takes a knee. One of the guys, number 40, Randy Love, for the St. Louis Cardinals, has no idea that the ball was down in the end zone. So he's running kind of as an up-front blogger. He's coming right towards me and uh, fight or flight takes place in my head right away i start running the other way uh self preservation um and as i turn on the astroturf i i snap my ankle and tear ligaments in my right ankle so basically what i say is uh you know it was it was one kick and lots of love and that was the end of my that was the end of my season pretty much because two weeks later the player strike came, and uh, and we're done for eight, ten weeks or something like that. So I I literally had an opening kickoff my rookie year, and then once the strike was over, I think I ended up playing. I got healthy again, but I ended up playing maybe five games. It was a very shortened season, so so it was a very ominous start, very uh, very humbling start. And uh, to say that my my position on the team was secure would be uh, uh, just a, a fat lie for sure. So I, I I had much to prove the following year, and um, and I did. That really was my coming out coming out party, if you will. Well,
1: let's talk about the Saints during those days, right? I mean, right now you're you're looking at the back end of a Drew Brees career, where I mean, the Saints have been relevant almost every year. But it was a very different day and age back in the mm-hmm. frankly for most of the for their existence, but seventies, eighties into the nineties. Tell the, the mm-hmm. listeners what that was like for the uh, for the Saints year in year out.
0: Yeah, it was run. You know, running back's gonna run left. It's gonna run right. He's gonna run up the middle. We're gonna punt. That was <laughs> initially what kind of was the idea. We we built the team. Bum built the team around a, a, a very good a good run game. You, Earl, Cam, Earl Campbell came in from Houston. Uh, a very good defense. Uh, it was pretty conservative. The forward pass was was in there, but it really was an afterthought. It was an afterthought in the league at the time. It was not a passing league. It was it, it was a where we used the tight end, we used the fullback, and you ran the ball. Uh, that has, of course, changed dramatically now. It's a passing. League. It's a QB league. It's a it's a passing league. It's fast. It's speed. So my role became very important because we would possess the football. And we would kind of matriculate down the field, and we would stall usually in the red zone or outside the red zone, and I would come in, and and we would just three-point people to death, especially uh, when Jim Mora came after Bum in 1985, and we were able to assemble uh, the Dome Patrol with uh, Ricky Jackson, Pat Swilling, Vaughn Johnson, and Sam Mills. These were four linebackers that we built our defense, our team around, Uh, there were anchors. We had Jim Wilkes and Frank Warren in there too. And we just, we had a good offensive lineup. Bobby Abiel was our quarterback. So we were, you know, and this was after I, after I played with Kenny Stabler for a couple of years. So, I mean, I, you know, Archie Manning, I was his teammate for for a little bit until he got uh, traded to Houston. So I I go back some, some time and, um, but our teams were you know, very conservative, great defense, lots of field goals. And uh, and playing uh, position ball where you know uh, let, let's let's make them go eighty ninety yards every time because we felt we could win we felt we could uh, if they have to go the long way we can stop them they'll punt we'll go the short distance kick fifty yard field goals and we we'll, might win nine to three it's not very sexy but we win the game and that's what we did in the eighties uh, in, in, especially in the latter part of the eighties early nineties. Uh, we we won more games in five years than anybody in the league, I believe. So we didn't get it done in the playoffs, but we won a ton of games.
1: Yeah, the, the end of the eighties. You said th- those dome patrol teams. I mean, that defense was uh-huh. unbelievable. The offense was always. You thought, boy, it had a personnel and it would get there, and it never did. And you mentioned the postseason. Uh, more yeah, how how? It was, tell me, to this uh, day is that is that one of the biggest like professional regrets that those teams never got to a Super Bowl or never achieved at that level?
0: absolutely we we had the players to um to go and to win in the super bowl we just were so tired you know and i i'm not going to blame jim more but but we practiced very very hard all the time throughout and it's a long season and when we got we were just done we were tired and uh Back then there were no rules about how many full pad practices you could have and two a days in a row. And I mean I don't know if you've spent four or five weeks uh having two a days and full pads in Ruston, Louisiana or Hammond, <laughs> Louisiana, but I got news for you. It's hot. Mm-hmm. It's 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 Africa hot. It's it's I mean <laughs> You know when when guys are losing ten, twelve pounds in in fluid or practice, you you can't get that back for the afternoon practice. I don't care how many IVs you you're putting in your body, uh, it's just not possible. So we were just tired for when when the playoffs rolled around, and we we had home field advantage in in most of those things. But um, yeah, very uh, very regrettable, unfortunately. But um, I didn't run the team, man.
1: No. <laughs> So talk to me about uh, the end of the 94 season. You're 34 years old, uh, about to be 35. And what was the decision from the Saints? How did the free agency period turn out? And and what a weird turn of events that you end up in the one place that New Orleans Saints fans look at and go, no, not there.
0: Exactly. Well, they wanted to cut my salary 40%. I was making a million dollars. And they were looking at the salary cap was a very new phenomenon. So everybody was trying to figure out where – how do we how do we massage this cap? How do we figure out? Well, they said, well, we're looking at a guy making a million dollars. He's a kicker. Let's cut him and take that four hundred grand off the million. He'll make six hundred, and for four hundred, we can go get a good player. Um, so that was the thinking. But the the problem I had with it was I was still playing at a high level. I had a contract, and they, you know, the teams want well, you to honor your contract. Well, the team should honor. The contract as well so i had a big problem with that i told them no and they released me and uh we were all we had a deal very quickly with with the falcons uh, thanks to june jones and frank gantz senior and the ironic part of it and i felt really bad for norm johnson norm johnson was coming off a year where he was 90 plus percent in field goals and he's cut they cut him it was the craziest thing. So I had a conversation with Norma. I said, Norm, I I feel your pain. I was just let go by the saints. And uh and I know that, you know, You became a collateral damage, a a casualty in in this whole domino effect, and uh, I feel terrible, but he went on to Seattle and did okay, so um, I think he's forgiven me, but uh, (laughs) it sure was an interesting time because I I never really verbalized how angry I was with the decision that that the Saints had made. I was going to show them on the field, and I think emphatically that was done in 95 when, when I broke NFL records all against the Saints.
1: And the '95 season for the Falcons was a playoff year, if, if memory serves. Uh, as you said, yeah. June Jones is the head coach, still running the run and shoot yeah. red gun the way they were working. How different were the organizations and the cities and the fan bases once you got over here? How did you see the difference?
0: It was it was different. I was so focused. I had to be honest with you. I was really. I, I didn't give that much thought. I was really focused on personal excellence and reestablishing my. Uh, in my swagger in the league because I felt like uh, something was ripped away from me with, with the decision the Saints had made. So I had a, a, a big chip on my shoulder and I had lots to prove, and that was my focus. So I really I enjoyed Atlanta. I thought it was fantastic to to play for the organization. I enjoyed my teammates, especially in the '98 season, all the way to the Super Bowl with with Dan Reeves. I, mean, I absolutely had a blast with some really strong personalities in this city. And uh, you know, I still live in Atlanta, so obviously I love it. But uh, it was different because there were more distractions here than than New Orleans. And I don't mean nightlife and things, but there were were more things in Atlanta uh, vying for the fans' attention. More teams. You had the Hawks. You had the Braves. Braves were pretty good back then, too. Um, So you had lots of... uh, It was just a bigger city, a bigger market. Where New Orleans, the only pro team you had at the time, you may have had the Jazz and the NBA. I'm not even sure if they were there or not, but I don't think they were. I think they were in Charlotte, maybe. I'm not sure. But New Orleans, it was the Saints, and that was it. Here, you you know, you certainly felt that the Falcons had a stronghold, but but it was going to take consistent winning for us to win over more fans. I, I did feel that, and I felt that as a responsibility, you know, on, on me as well to try to change. Uh, because historically, we, we, we can just say it like the way it was, the Saints and the Falcons historically had not had a lot of success on the field. And they were all. we were all waiting for something good to go, which it did for us. And certainly a little bit in 95, but really in 98 was a big big year for, for the Falcons.
1: So we took the plunge, yes, at the Chernoff House. The big renovations are going on. So it comes down to making the right choices when you want to do some of these renovation projects. And for us, when it came down to flooring and carpet, we wanted to work with a great local company that we know – could get the job done. That's why we turned to Peachwood Floor Coverings. I got a chance to meet Ryan Cornell and the great folks from Peachwood. When I say meet them, we got in touch with Ryan. 48 hours later, they came out to our home to start setting up measurements and looking at potential options for flooring and carpeting choices. It was beautiful. I love the process. It was just that easy. And right now, the process can be that easy for you. If you go to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com, you can schedule a consultation. They'll come out to your home. And all this month, if you mention Matt, Matt, That's the promo code, Matt. They're going to save you 10% on that flooring or carpet installation that you've always wanted. You want it easy, you want the process done quickly, and you want it to look beautiful. We're getting all that done with Peachwood Floor Coverings. Again, go online to peachwoodfloorcoverings.com or you can call them at 678-935-6901. Peachwood Floor Coverings, big company quality, small company services.
0: Hey, are you tired of
1: shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be you. At the Rhodes Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads groupcom It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the daily draft in downtown woodstock i hope you'll go see my friend sean daly that's get it the daily draft this is the ultimate sports bar experience so as the football playoffs near and then baseball's around the corner knock on wood and all the fun springtime things that will happen in atlanta you're going to want to enjoy it at the daily draft it's downtown woodstock on main street what you're going to find A craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salads, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. The is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Let's get to 98, but first tell me about the transition from June to Dan. How different was that? Because individually, and I don't want to gloss over this, you were, I mean, your numbers were really good from 95, 96, 97, but... As a team now in the transition from June to Dan, what did you say? Yeah,
0: June's style leadership style was a lot different than Dan. Um and the way he ran the team was different. Um I would say Dan tightened tightened the ship down a little bit. It was not on it was not unsimilar or dissimilar to what Moore was doing after bombing New Orleans where We have to make some changes. And, you know, June had his success, but there was a lot of, you know, there were a few loose cannons, I felt, and and some tightening down needed to be done. Um, But that wasn't June's fault. It was just guys took advantage, and it didn't need to be like that. But guys did take advantage of some of the freedom that that he gave the players, and uh, I didn't like that. And I think it cost us on the field, too. So Dan was an ex-player. He had coached with Dallas. He was a player coach with Dallas under Landry. Uh, So his history was well-documented, his success. And and, uh, I liked him from the very beginning. You know, he challenged you as a player. And June did too, but June was a little more laid back and let his assistants do it. But Dan was very clear on who was in charge here. He was uh, was the guy, and... um, certain rules you know uh, the usual hey be on time and be early and uh and and just work and uh and perform and uh your performance if you're performing and doing your thing you know dan was uh was great uh he gave you everything you needed and uh and he um he supported you he never uh never felt dan would uh, backstab you in the in the press um you know he would he would call it like it was, and so uh, he expected you to take personal responsibility, which which I really liked. I didn't want to be babysat. Um, I felt like I had a really good uh, program that made me successful and fit into the, and he wanted everybody to be inclusive and be, be a team, like a family. He preached that a lot, and uh, I really liked that, and I flourished in that environment.
1: I've talked to several guys on the 98 team and, and most recently Jamal Anderson who said 97 was the reason 98 happened. In other words, you guys finished 7-1, and one, if not for a crazy finish in Arizona, maybe won your last eight games. And He said going into the offseason, he goes, we realized how good we could be. The rest of the league wouldn't have paid attention to us. Do you look at that kind of offseason going into 98 the same way?
0: Yeah, I agree with Jamal when he says that because 97 was uh, a really good that that was Dan's first year as head coach here, and um, I had come off just a a terrible exit to '96, where I missed a 30-yard kick in Jacksonville that left us at three and 13, but put Jacksonville in the playoffs. So that you talk about a a kick that everybody still remembers. It was that 30-yarder where I slipped and pushed it wide left. So I had much to prove with this new coach uh, again. And that's just uh, you know, it's a testament that every year you gotta really uh you gotta bring your best. And uh I, I loved it but I think ninety seven was definitely a, uh, a year where we saw big changes. We saw it in the way we played, and and the way Dan ran it, and and the results started coming at the tail. You know, the second half of '97, you really started seeing. Wow, we got something. We got a pretty good nucleus of guys here uh, that can uh, playmakers, and uh, we stay healthy. We we can do something pretty unique.
1: I would say fourteen and two is is pretty unique. Yeah, the '98 season, you hit eighty three percent of your kicks that year and and you guys got off to a, a good start you went you know two or three and then all of a sudden you start putting wins together and I think there was a game where where Chris got hurt and Steve DeBerg came in maybe against uh, the Jets or somebody but after that he stayed healthy for the most of the, the rest of the season you guys went on a tear take me through that year what kind of ride was that for you just being a part of that special season that we didn't even know was going to you know culminate in Minnesota.
0: It was uh, it was an amazing year. Uh, I think it it was kind of uh, uh, it was like a, a a fire that just slowly took took you know just heated up, heated up, and and we all f- fed it with our personalities. You know, started with the embers, man, and then all of a sudden that thing caught caught on, and and we stoked it. We weren't scared to we challenged. I I felt. Uh, I think I had more practical jokes uh, pulled on me and vice versa throughout that whole year. Um, and just the very strong personalities across the board was, was, it was almost dangerous sometimes because it could explode. You know, if, if we hadn't had Dan, I felt to kind of conduct at the madhouse, um, That thing could have exploded and gone a different direction because we had some really strong, strong personalities that were borderline uh, crazy. Um, You know that uh, there's a movie to be made about that team. Um, But he harnessed it really well, and then I think the impetus with his heart condition and his surgery really put us over the top. But we said, let's go win this. Not only for ourselves, but but for Dan Reeves, and um, and that's it was a, it was a real powerful freight train coming down the track, and you, you're going to get run over literally. Uh, and we didn't care what other people said about us. We we didn't care uh, what they thought about us. Uh, we were you know we were we were the dirty birds.
1: <laughs> what um, take me through how you found out about Dan, and and you mentioned he had to leave the team and. It was. It's a huge deal. Anytime it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, you're dealing with a heart situation. But how did you learn of it, and how did the team receive it when it first came in?
0: Yeah, we were we were concerned. I I remember we were in New Orleans, and I had catered all the buses. We were just beaten the Saints, and uh, I had catered all this New Orleans seafood and, and Italian food, uh, you know, and had it put out so when guys, coaches were boarding the buses, they could they could. Make because everybody's starving after games, and usually you just don't get anything good to eat. So I, I was going to make sure we ate well after the Saints game because I had I had plenty of contacts in the restaurant business in New Orleans. So we were eating really well, and I remember Dan sitting on the t- on the first bus, and he kind of gestured to me. I said, "This is that was odd." He goes, uh, "Mord, we got to go. We got to go," and there was a sense of urgency in his voice. I said, "Something's not right here." I don't know what it is, but something's not right. Well, he had had an episode on the sideline. I think he was having some symptoms, and and his doctor said we got to get you, uh, we got to get you home right away, and we got to get you tested. And it was the next morning. I mean, he went straight to the hospital when we landed. So the reason that there was no time to for lollygagging around the Superdome with with good catered food was, hey, we got to go. I'm I'm having issues, so. We piled all the food as quickly as we could on those buses, and we were gone. So that's that's how I found out.
1: Hmm. And I do remember, you know, Rich Brooks takes over as the interim, and, and you guys have a, again, the memory can play tricks, but a, a Sunday afternoon late start, I think, in Detroit maybe.
0: Yeah, uh, we're playing Detroit. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then, and, yep. and, and then even the Rams, I think, after that. But how was the, the mood without Dan? How much were you guys in contact and knowing what was going on?
0: Uh, Rich was, was great, you know, and Rich had Pat. Uh, experience at the highest level uh, before. I really liked Rich Brooks. I thought he was a great man, great coach, and uh, very confident he could listen. Uh, the team was rolling at this time, so you know, of course, we wanted Dan there uh, driving the car. But in his absence, we were perfectly fine with Rich Brooks, and uh, he, he, you know, we we thought of Dan. We were mindful that we were playing for him and praying for him and. We, um, it was business as usual. Quite honestly, Matt, we didn't uh, we didn't miss a beat. Uh, maybe a little more emotional uh, about it when we won, and uh, but you know, at the end of the day, we we knew that this wasn't the end game. Dan was going to get well. He was coming back as soon as he could. There was no doubt about that, and we were just going to keep this train rolling.
1: And you guys did that. You guys go into the playoffs against the hated 49ers. And this city, man, we got memories of the 49ers doing things to us. So when when that draw came up, everybody went, oh, boy. But you guys took care of that with a two-point win. Then that week of Minnesota came up, Mort. And I'll just give you my memory because I want it from your perspective. I remember saying that's a 15-1 and Minnesota team. And everybody neglected that you guys were 14-2. and You guys were a double-digit underdog going up there. And on the outside, everybody went, it's been a nice year. This is about as far as we'll go. Internally, I'm sure that certainly wasn't the, the the message. How did you guys receive what was being said about you?
0: Nobody thought we were going to win, including our fans. I, I really felt that. I said, "How is it possible that a team that's 14 and two's got to go on the road and be the underdog? This is crazy. Normally, at 14 and two, you're at home, and you're the fave. So, it I think it just stoked the fire more. Guys were there was no lack of enthusiasm or confidence in my mind. We felt that if we hung around and we knew that the Vikings were good, heck, they had Randy Moss, he was a rookie. They had, a, you know, they were very explosive offensively. They had set records. We, we were aware of that, but so had we. We had we had, had a heck of a year. I mean, <laughs> one game, you know, we're 14-2 between the two teams, 29 wins and, Three losses, not, not too shabby. It was going to be, we knew it was going to be a, a, a battle. We knew it was going to be a hell of a game. And if we stuck around and kept it close, we'd find a way in the end to win it. And that's exactly what happened.
1: So before we get to your moment, uh, explain to the people listening, the noise level in the Metrodome from right before Gary Anderson's about to kick what everybody thought was the punctuation kick to send him to the Super Bowl and then the quiet when he missed.
0: Yeah, the quiet when he missed, it was loud. Well, it was actually very quiet when he kicked because, you know, they, they like to keep it quiet. Uh, it was when I came in in overtime and kicked, it got really loud. It was loud, and then it was deafening silence as the ball came through. I think we were, we were all surprised because Gary was 35 for 35. It was one of the top kickers in the history of the game. There's no debating that. So I, I didn't like our chances. I mean, it was a 38-yarder, 40-and-in. He's pretty deadly. So uh, when he did pull the ball to slightly left, I said, this is our day and because it kept the game at a touchdown, uh, and it gave us a chance to, to put together a drive at the end of the fourth quarter where where Chris Chandler was brilliant, and his throw to Terrence Mathis on the a little uh comeback route where Terrence recognized that uh, Chris was scrambling and had to g- get in front of the safety and Chris threw it the only place he could down low and, and Terrence T-MAT went and got that ball and and I had to come in and kick what what turned out to be a really important extra point point. <laughs> so and I actually had to kick it twice because uh, the Vikings jumped off sides that was more nerve-wracking than anything.
1: That's interesting, yeah. Uh, And then the overtime, which, I mean, I I can't even imagine being on the sideline, but as the fan watching every big throw the Vikings would put up top to Randy Moss or a a deep shot to Chris Carter, you held your breath. But eventually you guys put a drive together, and OJ Santiago had a big catch on the drive, and there were just a couple of big plays, and all of a sudden you come in. So, And I've asked you about this before, but I'm fascinated by it. Mentally, um, emotionally, how do you control yourself and the emotions and the mental part of preparing for that kick?
0: Well, part of my pre, pre-game uh, ritual would be to – I did a lot of visualization, what I call cognitive intervention. So, the back kick was made Saturday night in the hotel room. I would do a lot of visualizing, writing down notes, uh, putting together scenarios that might come up in a game. And one of those scenarios I had written Saturday night was a 38-yarder from the left half in overtime uh, to win the game. And I still have the notepad still have that kick written in there and that's exactly what happened so i really felt very good about our chances at that point because i knew that it was uh very realistic we're going to have a high probability we're going to have a good snap a good hold and and i'm capable more than capable of making this kick i've done it i can do this in my sleep i mean 38 yards usually i'm close to 100 percent. 40 yards and in so I was not that worried. Now I know my teammates; they weren't in control. They were on their knees, holding hands. I get it; they're not driving the car at that point. I am, so I knew we were going to win. I knew we were going to go to the Super Bowl. I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and when I when I went out there, it was loud. Uh, it, the, the the ground was shaking. It, it moved. I don't know how, but it was vibrating. And, of course, when they called timeout, I was just there standing on, uh, and just getting my target line and my breathing regulated and went to the ball, hit it solidly. As soon as I hit it, I knew it was going right down the middle. I started running, and uh, it got really quiet in there. But for a few Falcons fans up in the nosebleeds, they were going nuts. It was great.
1: So when you kick it, you said, because I I remember you start turning your back and running with your hands up. Does it mm-hmm. does it get sort of like blank in your mind at that point? Or, I mean, what's the emotion at that very moment before the podium comes out and the trophy comes out? What is that couple yeah. of moments like?
0: It, it was just a rush of adrenaline through my body that I cannot describe. It, uh, it was a high that I wish you could bottle and bring forth, you know, at special parties and moments where you just – pure exuberation, exuberation, pure joy, pure relief, uh, and release, and all of those things. and But the most, uh, just adrenaline, absolute uh, tremendous amount of adrenaline pumping through your body, and uh, you feel like you're invincible at that moment. And, and when you see your teammates and their joy, you realize the moment. Uh, is is there, and that you did it, and you were part of it, and uh, and then it it becomes a little bit blurry. It becomes you get this hot sensation through your body. You get um, it, it's just pure joy. You know this is this is at the highest level when you compete and you have these moments. They uh, you want them to last a lot longer. You feel like it's it's lasting forever, but it's really fast and fleeting, and and then you're you're on you're on to the next thing it's just uh yeah amazing really amazing
1: yeah. uh more we could talk for hours but you end up kicking for the falcons for a couple of more years and you kicked for i think it was eight more years in the league to the age yeah. of 47 um so let's talk about you know defying the odds and doing it to that age and then what would follow is i mean the ultimate for any athlete is to get that call or, in this yeah. case, the knock on the door that you're going to the Hall of Fame, so take me through those years and then the the i mean the ultimate respect for an athlete
0: well i I'll leave you with this story. I think it'll be a fitting ending um, when I come off two thousand and four, my twenties 27- second year in the league, 23rd year in the league. I played for the Vikings of all teams in 2004. I had just been let go by Kansas City. I was also in New York for a year during uh, during 9-11 and that whole uh, scenario, which was terrible. But coming off 2004, I'm 44 years old uh, and I have the utmost confidence that I'm going to get a phone call pretty quickly, hopefully from the home team. of uh, of Atlanta and and playing at 24th season. And one month turns to two months, turns to six months, turns to 20 months where I'm literally with my trainer in a public park here in Swanee uh, with my shoulder pads and helmet and pants and Pro Bowl jersey on because I always practiced the way I played and I would have to defer the the field to the little leaguers when they needed the field because I had nowhere to kick. And I would be doing this four times a week for 20 months, and the phone didn't ring. And um, I never did lose uh, hope that I would have an opportunity to finish my career on my terms. You know, I was 77 points away from becoming the all-time leading scorer in the league, and normally I would say, well, That's not what drives me, but it did drive me. I wanted to finish. I wanted to go get that. That would be a manifestation of a really good career. Whether it took me a year or two years, I I wasn't too concerned. Now, there were people in my circle of friends and so forth that were starting to doubt whether my sanity was all – if I was sane. Because any time you do something for 20 months without seeing any results – uh, that could be uh, uh that could be kind of uh looked at as as stupidity uh and maybe it was i I prefer to call it stubbornness, the right kind of stubborn because when that phone call did come and I had a tryout against uh, you know what I call flat bellies uh, four guys half my age uh and when that came and when I beat those guys out and and reclaimed my position on the falcons. I was forty six years old, Matt and uh, you know the the prize came in december when i I broke the scoring record, so it was absolutely worth the uh the humility and and the grind in a public park for twenty months to get that done and to see it through and so just for for giggles, I played another year and added a few more points, of course, Adam has broken that since, but I think without the 20 months in the public park, I'm not so sure I would be wearing a gold jacket today because I don't think I would have the opportunity to go get the scoring record, and, uh, and that was an important component at the time.
1: You said wearing the gold jacket, Morton, and let's finish there. To have HOF in front of your name, can you put it into words?
0: No, that one is really hard to grasp uh, because as, as an individual player in the league, that is the highest individual honor you can get. That is a recognition. That is forever. You're we a bronze boss for the last 40,000 years, I'm told, in Canton, Ohio. And uh, it is a little bit surrealistic that I'm in there with the very best legends that the game has ever produced. So I am very humbled by that. I don't take it lightly. I try to live a Hall of Fame life every day. I try to absolutely live by the values of the Hall and of uh, integrity and of uh, all those things that, uh, that we try to do. And, and to affect a positive change in the younger generation is really what I try to do as well.
1: Well, I know your words are doing that a lot. Uh, let's mention BettingExpert.com, some of the folks you're working with right now.
0: Yeah, that's an exciting time for me. It's a Danish company out of Copenhagen called Better Collective. One of their U.S. affiliates is uh, bettingexpert.com, and uh, it empowers the iGamer to make smart decisions when they do uh, partake in that entertainment uh, of online betting, which I think should be legal everywhere. And now with the repeal of PAFTA, uh, New Jersey, West Virginia, states are starting to come online and – it's it's almost like going to a movie. You know, sometimes the movie, you really like the movie. Sometimes the movie is not so good. It's I, I look at sports and gambling and sports betting the same way sometimes, but, but you should be empowered and you should be educated as to where, where you can do it in a safe environment so that the power is not with these offshore bookies anymore. It's much more transparent. And I think with a company like Better Collective, and with Betting Expert, Betting Expert has all these tipsters, which is really fun. You can you can lend your expertise, and you'll, you'll actually get graded. You'll actually get uh, evaluated and rewarded if you give good tips to the iGamers. And uh, it should be fun. It should be safe, entertaining. And uh, that's why I kind of represent uh, that side of it, the compliance and the empowerment of the iGamer. That's what we want to be.
1: Or the uh, stories speak for themselves, my friend. Unbelievable. Can't thank you now for spending time with us and uh, nothing but uh, great things in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, so much for taking the time to listen to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. Thanks to our producer, Matt Lear, for his assistance with the program. He's the glue that keeps the operation running. We'll talk to you next week. On Welcome to Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play, and we ride on the things like every day. Big beats hit street seat gangsters roaming, and parties don't stop till eight in the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play, and we ride on the banks like every day. Big beats hit street seat gangsters roaming. Uh-huh.
0: Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundation sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off.